0: Welcome, everyone. You are listening to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters, the Global Impact of Egalitarian Theology on Human Flourishing. We are just delighted and honored to welcome our guest today, Pauline Hassan Berkey. And Kim Dixon, uh, our co-host, is going to give you a thorough introduction. Kim? Yes.
1: So we had the opportunity to hear from Scott Arbiter, the former president of World Relief, whose work involved serving and assisting refugees around the world. And his biblical understanding and vision were powerful and very important in helping Christians understand God's call that we remember our own vulnerabilities like the Israelites were called to remember themselves as slaves and to reach out in practical ways to love others who are also found in vulnerable situations. But I think it's important that if we are to love people well that we listen to their stories and allow their stories to form and shape us. So today we have the opportunity to interview and hear from my friend, Pauline Hassan Berkey, who came to the United States as a little girl with her mother and baby brother as refugees from South Sudan. Now Pauline is the daughter of South Sudanese refugees and they resettled in the United States in 1994. She grew up in City Heights, a densely populated and vibrant community of immigrants and refugees in East San Diego. She studied interpersonal and organizational communications and journalism at Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. And she's worked with refugees and immigrant communities, then moved to funding programs across sub-Saharan Africa, In 2016, she and her husband moved to Rwanda to continue working in international development. She is now back in the United States and she works as a program manager for PICO, P-I-C-O, California, the largest multi-faith community organizing nonprofit in California. Pauline married her college sweetheart, Kenny, and they currently live in Sacramento where they just recently recently welcomed their first child. Pauline, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Kim. Yeah. So Pauline, I had the opportunity over the years to hear some of your very rich stories as, the, as you reflect on your young years in the Kenyan refugee camps and your transitions to a new home in a new country in San Diego. Would you be willing to share some of those stories
2: with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for the introduction. Um, yeah, my my story is pretty, I think, will resonate with a lot of people who have immigrated to this country. Um, we came to San Diego when I was four years old. Um, we were living in, in Kenya. I was born in Nairobi while we were living in a refugee camp. Um, and, you know, the the refugee camp that I lived in for the first few years of my life is still operating. Um, It opened in I think 1990 uh, for 90,000 refugees, and now has half a million people still living there. So there are people who were born at the same time that I was, who were in that camp, who are now raising their own families there. Um, And so you know we're we're fortunate to have only been there a few years. Um, You know I don't have any active memories because we were pretty young. I was pretty young when we came to the states, but um, you know we immigrated into a community that was full of foreigners, you know, so I was, I was among people like me. Um, My school was full of kids who spoke English as their second or third language, came home and, you know, basically home was a different continent. And we all kind of shared that same experience. Um, You know, life was balancing two opposing cultures. At school, it was a a whole set of rules about how you operate in an American setting. And then at home, it was picking, picking up that culture that your parents, you know, are so proud to um, protect and uphold. And so it was constantly like juggling, you know, and, and it wasn't always easy. Um, but you know, that's, that was kind of life. Um, and then about in, in, in high school, my mom decided, you know, we were living in a pretty low-income neighborhood and the school systems weren't that great. So she found affordable housing um, up in North County, San Diego. Um, So I went to high school in Carlsbad. And I always describe that as my second migration. I went from being, you know, one among many to one of one or one of five because my siblings were with me. Um, And, you know, it was a very white, extremely affluent neighborhood. And um, just having to navigate that as a 14-year-old, you know, at a critical age was really difficult. And so, you know, I think that that is also a, a huge part of my immigration story, even though we had moved up there while I'd been in the States for a while, because it definitely shaped my
0: worldview now. Hmm. Yeah. So Colleen, I, I think that your story is so similar to my own really, as a daughter of immigrants. And I think the other part of your story really is how your Christian faith had such a critical role that it played in your life, your education, and your calling. Could you speak to it uh, and how it impacted your life for our listeners?
2: Yeah. So um, my family is from South Sudan, and um, before the country split into two, Sudan and South Sudan... Um, you know, in the north, it's largely Muslim, and in the south, it's largely Christian, so I grew up in a Christian household, um, and when we came to the states, you know, church was just part of our day-to-day life. We we found our community there, um, and my particular congregation, St. Luke's Episcopal Church in North North Park, San Diego, um, was led by a pastor named Father David, or a priest named Father David, and he just welcomed, you know, welcomed our community, and so You know, because of that welcoming, I I think subconsciously and then now as an adult, very consciously and very intentionally understood that serving God meant cultivating belonging for people who didn't look like you, people who didn't have the same history as you or stories, Um, because my own life in my church and, you know, the way my faith was shaped was all about belonging. There was no exclusion. There was, we make space for people and, you know, that's it because that's what Jesus would do. And so, you know, it's it's kind of been um, shocking as an adult to have more experiences and kind of expanding my perspective and realizing that that's not necessarily the norm for a lot of people. But, um, you know, my faith has just been really rooted in serving and creating belonging. Mm. Beautiful.
1: As you talk about that, I just think about what I've been learning and seeing anew in Acts, where the church is just like on this constant course of expanding and including new people into the church. As they are. Like, what a shock it was to include Cornelius, a Gentile who was unclean, and the church took Peter to task for it. And he was like, well, the Holy Spirit did it. Like, oh, well, in that case. And then it was Lydia, who was the head of a household woman, Gentile, and she was accepted. And there's people from far reaches of the world. Like, it just, the whole theme was to make room. This is a faith that makes room. So you just um, articulated.
2: So all of what I've been learning in like two sentences is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's um, when I was looking over the questions and just reflecting on what I wanted to share this morning, I thought that question was so timely. Um, so I was, my husband and I went home for Easter um, and we went back to St. Luke's with my mom and took Isaiah, my son. And afterwards, my the priest that used to pastor that church is no longer there. And so I called him and said, hey, Father David, I'm in town. I'd love to see you. It had been maybe 10 years since I saw him last. So we went over to the house and we had breakfast and we just sat there and exchanged so many old stories of just, I mean, it was so chaotic to cultivate (laughs) belonging. You know, we were talking about the, he said, when the first Sudanese refugees came to church, the only thing I knew about Sudan was how to find it on a map. (laughs) Wow. And, um, you know, to be able to tell him now as an adult, how much creating that space did for me as a person um, I thought it was really special because it wasn't perfect. It was messy from start to finish, um, but it mattered, you know, it really, really mattered. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's just something I'm so fortunate to have been able to experience at, you know, as just everyday life. Like it wasn't anything special. It just was, it was everyday life, you know?
1: Yeah. And for that to be your formative, Um, years of starting to understand your faith Mm -hmm. so powerful yeah very powerful Um, I remember hearing a story uh, that you told about a church that came alongside your families with mentors to help them navigate their life in San Diego I can't quite remember what part of your story that was could you talk about that a little bit
2: yeah. So that was St. Luke's, um, the church okay. that I'm talking about now. Um, and so they had, you know, as part of welcoming families, uh, the church created like a refugee ministry where mentors would walk alongside families. Um, and at the time, you know, my mom was a young mother. She was on her fourth child. And um, my, my godmother now came alongside us as just a, a mentor. You know, she drove my mom to appointments. She sat with us while we did our homework. And she just kind of Started being part of our everyday life, um, and that really developed into a deep relationship um, where you know Diane was like a second mom growing up, um, and it, you know the contrast between having a, a very strong Sudanese woman as a mother and then a very strong American woman as a mother really <laughs> formed my identity of you know um, honoring the gifts and the talents I've been blessed with. So. Um, you know, not every mentor relationship develops into something so deep for everyone, but I think it does matter to have someone just say, "I'm here with you. I might not have all the answers, but I will walk alongside you as you figure this out." Um, and thankfully, I, I have been reaping the benefits from that um, since the beginning, you know, being able to access education, being able to access um, things that my mom wouldn't even know to search for because she she didn't grow up here, she didn't know. You know, let me put my kids in the arts. Let me, you know, expose them to travel. Let me put them in these different programs. Diane really helped open my mom's eyes to a lot of that. Um, and I think the thing that she did the best was she always honored my mother as our mother. She never tried to be the savior, you know, of anything. She was de- much, very much uh, walking alongside our family. Um, and so we, we got to grow up together in that sense. I love
1: Holly. that practical. I'm sorry, just thinking how the practical intervention of someone who doesn't really know anything about refugees probably or your family, but coming alongside you in that and vulnerably being there to help, I yeah. think is
0: powerful. Do you still keep up with Diane?
2: Yeah, I haven't talked to her in a while, but we. Um, she lives in uh, just, just not too far away from here and um, she's been part of my life since I was a little girl all the way up to, until like my wedding day, you know, and was with me through college and everything. But it's it's been really amazing to have that kind of relationship.
0: Mm. Pauline, you worked in Rwanda. I've worked there as well. I'm wondering if you can share with us a bit about your work, what you did, um, and sort of some of the impact you saw there.
2: Yeah, my husband and I moved to Rwanda in 2016. Uh, we were living in New York prior to that. And I always had a, a desire to go back to Africa um, and, and serve in some capacity. So when the opportunity came up um, to work for World Relief Rwanda, I took it and I was a savings for, I was part of this program called Savings for Life, which is microfinancing um, and savings uh, program in across the country. Savings and microfinancing programs are huge, huge, huge in Rwanda. And so we were able to kind of just support local groups trying to build capital for their businesses um, by relying on each other it was rooted in um you know a a faith-based curriculum and so really just talking about um how to be good stewards of your money as well as good stewards to one another um you know it was just a volunteer position so i wasn't i wasn't on there on like a full-time um basis but walking alongside the professionals working in rwanda um was really amazing to just kind of see how um, Rwandans were leading the efforts in in their own development. Mm.
1: Was were those uh, microfinance programs? Were they directed to anyone who was interested, or certain populations, to women? What were they?
2: So there lives. was, like I said, savings programs are huge in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So there were several NGOs kind of doing um, similar things. The program that I was part of was in the rural community. So there were no, I lived in Kigali, so the capital city. And so there were no savings programs that we did in the capital. Uh, we went out into the, you know, into the field and um, worked with people in very rural villages. And um, part of my work was introducing how to, track some of their um, savings and their meetings that they had every week and um, their data on cell phones. And so it was a lot of technology uh, (laughs) kind of guiding that I had to do, which was really, I mean, to be in the middle of the bush in Africa, uh, you know, where there's no internet access, but being able to show people how to use technology on a tablet um, in order to build capital for their own businesses was amazing.
1: Mm, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So that that kind of bridges into the idea that humanitarian work has noted that time and time again, um, the status of women really determines the success of the interventions. Mm-hmm. So as as you observed, and you've heard your mother's stories um, at, in refugee camps, were there issues that your mother had to navigate that were unique to her situation as a woman and as a mother and were these different than than from men or your father other people
2: yeah um I was really thinking about this question a lot um so when I think about my mom's story obviously not knowing every single detail just as as the perspective of her daughter um I don't and now as I I guess now as a wife and a mother having a Mm -hmm. different it changes that.
1: your perspective again. <laughs> it changes, yeah, it
2: changes a lot. Like I was like, wow, <laughs> almost immediately. <laughs> uh-huh. um, you know, I don't think my mom's challenges were unique to any woman's challenges. You know, the challenges of balancing your, your own dreams and your own desires as a woman and also managing your household. So I think that that is pretty universal. Um, I think where my mom struggled or the tension that she had to live with is When she came to this country, right, um, America and Western cultures uh, allow women to be leaders. Um, Whereas in Sudanese culture, women are usually following men um, in a more, I wanna say like a more in your face kind of way. Um, And so observing my mom as a little girl, I often saw my mom as the only woman at the table she was always the only woman at a leadership table. She was always the only woman speaking up, um, and she got a lot of crit- criticism. I remember hearing little comments, you know, like telling her, "Hey, watch it! Like, hey, don't be so outspoken. Don't be this." And so That's I don't know from, uh, from the,
1: Sudanese, yeah, from the oh, Sudanese from the Sudanese women. women,
2: yeah, from the Sudanese women, yeah, from the women of what are you doing? That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not. We don't belong there um was kind of the sense and so i remember kind of taking that and and making it my own as a as a young girl saying well if my mom can be a leader so can i um and drawing the same drawing the same criticisms you know of um why am i not serving food to my male cousins who are coming to our house and why am i not you know taking on this profile of what a woman should be um i think the the way that some of that tension materialized in a more personal way for my mom was in her marriage to my dad. Um, I don't think it was a smooth transition for my dad to be able to accept his wife as a, as a huge community leader. Um, You know, my mom was a big leader in San Diego among the refugee community. She was a caseworker who helped families who were resettling as well. Um, And everyone knew my mom, you know, (laughs) she was all over the place. She was, um, you know, a a huge leader. And so I think that that caused tensions that maybe I don't even know about, but I definitely saw my dad struggling with that kind of profile um, and hearing comments about her needing to be home and maybe not working and things like that. And so when I think about that, I, you know, obviously there's trauma and there's a lot more complexity when you're also resettled to a new country and trying to figure it out. But I do think my mom's struggle was a universal struggle that women face all the time.
0: When you think about, you know, the example of your mother, her leadership, which was in San Diego, which was often at odds with her own culture of origins. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the work you have done, both in Rwanda and now in Sacramento, as a mother yourself, uh, a daughter of immigrants, an immigrant yourself, what are sort of some of the main the great wisdom that you're bringing to these conversations on the intersection of race, gender, and belonging, because the organizations you work for now really are centered on belonging, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that belonging is tricky to navigate as an immigrant, um, and especially one that's at odds with your own culture of origins. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, um, my life has been a search for belonging. You know, um, there's a, I I can't remember who who said this, but there's a quote that says like I'm too too foreign for here, but too Western for there, and so you never really feel like there's a space a space for you. Um, you know, I was not black enough for the black community here, but I was also too black at the same time. I was too African. <laughs> um, you know, as a woman, I'm not soft enough, but I'm also too strong. So it's just a search for belonging. And I think I'm still on that journey. I I don't think I'll ever not be on that journey. Um, But the work that I've been doing is belonging to myself um, and finding that that sense of safety within myself. And I think that that requires um, an interrogation of all of these experiences and an interrogation of the messages, both from the church, both from you know, school, work, my personal relationships that have told me that I don't belong um, and just kind of deconstructing that. Mm -hmm. I think right now the place that I feel like I belong the most is when I'm holding my baby. You know, um, he sees me and doesn't matter if mom hasn't showered today (laughs) and doesn't matter if mom got all her work done today. It's just like, you're, I, he belongs to me and I belong to him. And, you know, I think that that is a feeling that I want to cultivate within myself so that regardless of the room that I walk into, that I'm undeterred. Um, because I think for much of my life as someone who's been on a quest to conform and to shape shift and uh, you know tone switch it's it's been because my belonging has been dependent on what other people think and what other people say. And I guess as an adult, I'm just realizing like, okay, well then <laughs> that's gonna just be a very tension filled life. Um, and so that's kind
0: of I guess my perspective on it now. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a belonging can also be just presence with someone your son for example just mm-hmm. presence yeah presence
2: of someone who is, accepts you as you are unconditionally mm-hmm. right
1: that's to me how God looks at us like yeah I made you this unique person that I adore like your son adores you <laughs> mm-hmm. and just just feel it accept it love it lean into it um despite the voices you hear around
0: you. Yeah. So in your own biblical reflection and in considering the larger Christian community, how do you and women like you um, really contribute your fullness of calling and potential and giftedness? In the work you do and the relationships you have, it's a broad question. You can just come at it however you like. But this is a point for you to just give us some of your insights on the way you read the Bible and the way you live now, and the work you do.
2: Yeah. I, when I saw this question, I was like, I don't feel qualified to answer this question. (laughs) Um, And so I wrestled with it for a long time. And I think I just have a very simple, short answer. I think my answer to that is there's not one way to be a woman um, and that's okay. And I think we see that in the Bible. There is not one way to be a woman um, and we see that in real life. So That's that's all I got.
1: (laughs) Amen. But it's so true. I mean, in the Bible, you have people that make clothes for others. You have warriors. You have you have all kinds of amazing women that are all different, and they're applauded for who they are and their difference.
0: Yes, thank you for that. I love it. I'm going to tweet it as soon as we hang up.
1: Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit to us about PICO, who they are, what they do, and belonging, because I, I think belonging, it might fit under PICO, that's a name. Yeah,
2: so I, I can clarify that. So PICO, California is, um, a, you know, a statewide network of uh, federations or small organizations that do community organizing And so community organizing is basically walking alongside community members to architect solutions for themselves. Um, And so I started as a community organizer out of our Sacramento office um, about four years ago now. Um, And I worked on walking alongside community members to take on the issue of homelessness. And, you know, we obviously intersect with local policy. And so in meetings with mayors and city council people, to advocate, not on behalf of, but alongside um, people looking for solutions. Uh, we the, the network of federations uh, organizes around criminal justice reform, immigration, education, an array of issues um, that, that affects different local communities. And so as part of the statewide team now, um, I support our federations in the work that they're doing. And one of the ways that we decided um, to support them was through creating what we call the Belong Movement. And the Belong Movement is a series of strategic conversations around a curriculum um, called Belong Circles, where people are having conversations about difference. Um, so the huge differences that constantly cause tension in our world are race, gender, faith, class. Um, and so having these conversations where people are not only um coming to terms with their own stories and gaining the skills to share them, but also in the practice of listening and creating space for others. And so the hope is that through these conversations and through these encounters and relationship building, that will impact the way people show up in public life. So if my neighbor is is an immigrant and I have a certain worldview about immigrants, but I've never had a conversation with them, that's going to affect the way that I show up in policymaking and I show up um, just in society. And so we're really just trying to minimize um, some of that space and bring people closer together in hopes that those kinds of transformations are what leads to a bigger societal change.
1: Talk about bringing you, all of you to the table. That's, you're like perfectly fit for that.
2: And that's, you know, when I, um, when we launched it, I was a community organizer and, you know, this conversation around belonging, I had never heard it articulated. And I go, that's me guys, you guys are talking about my story. And so, you know, I definitely showed up to the table um, with my own self-interest at the forefront because I was like, I get it. I get not feeling like I belong. I get being on this search, I get like wrestling with my own story. And so it's been powerful to walk alongside people who, you know, we we are faith-based. So we work in congregations um, across different faiths. And so there's people who've been going to church together for 30 years, but they don't know each other's stories on a deep, intimate level. And so to be able to like sit and allow people to exchange those is, is, I mean, it's transformative. So yeah, that's the work that I do. Um, it's both inspiring and also challenging because belonging is not something that's easy or, <laughs> or quick to get to. And so even, you know, there's a series of four sessions. By the fourth session, I mean, people are just getting their feet wet. They're not even ready to um, to take action, but it, it's one step. And so, you know, uh, that's that's kind of the the responsibility we're taking on to allow people to take those baby steps.
0: Pauline, if you could cite one or two reasons why Americans have such a hard time with belonging, even in their own congregation, what do you think that is?
2: Um, hmm. I think vulnerability is required in order to cultivate belonging. And at least my experience has been like vulnerability equals weakness, and Americans don't like to appear weak. Um, And so it's easy to just keep your story, you know, close to to you and not share that. Um, But ironically, we find a lot of healing when we share our stories. And, you know, we allow others to find healing as well. And so I think vulnerability is probably the biggest thing. Um, It's not something that's, that's taught in school. It's not something that's uh, accepted in most workplaces. And even in churches, um, you know, like I I grew up Episcopalian, um, but then I started going to evangelical churches after college. And even like testimonies, when people would get up and, and share their testimonies, I always felt like it was very polished and clean. And it was like, I was struggling and I'm better now because of God. And while that might be true, it's also like, but we all have struggles every day, you know, life isn't perfect. And so I think my perspective had always been like, before I can share my testimony, I have to have my life together. And like, I'm just realizing I'm never going to have my life together fully. And so if I can share that while I'm going through it and offer um, opportunity to find healing in relationship with others, I think that's how you create belonging.
0: Thank you so much. Really helpful.
2: Great. I wrote down the words human flourishing um, about this, you know, what you guys are creating here. And I think that that's just a beautiful thing um, that I'm going to reflect on today because we always talk about like just living, getting through life. And, you know, these are the things that I'm doing, but flourishing is just a beautiful. I just get beautiful imagery, right? I get like flowers blooming into this beautiful bouquet, and I get growth happening, and all of that also requires struggle and conflict and tension to to grow, um, and it requires vulnerability and openness. And so, I guess I just want to say thank you for creating the space to be able to talk about that, um, because I feel like I've grown through this, you know, the forty minutes that we've been talking together. Um, And, yeah, I just, I don't know. I I just really like the term human flourishing. I think that that's just a beautiful way to capture what we're trying to do here.
0: Mm -hmm. Women community organizers almost always, from what the sounds of your your description of both your mother and the work that you do, um, is really a, a primal portal to human flourishing. And so we thank you for your contribution there as well.
2: Thank
1: you. Yeah, Pauline, I want to thank you for sharing your story more than just here, for sharing it over the years. Because for me, um, raising two daughters that are immigrants that are not white in a very white town, your story has continued to be a backdrop that I can reflect on and think about. And only your vulnerability in sharing has allowed me to think about things I probably wouldn't have thought about otherwise. And, and that allows my daughters to have a better future. So I personally want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you um, for that on behalf of our audience. Uh, so I just pray that your stories keep helping us, the family of God, to fully understand the heart of
0: God. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you. So, Kim, there's really no end to these wonderful people we could interview. I think we have a career going for the next 20 years.
1: I know. I was thinking, I really love this. These people all have such great stories, and I love the opportunity (laughs) to get to hear them and
0: just sit there and go, that's my job right now to hear your story. I think we should have a conference with every person we've interviewed for the next two years and just call it Global Impact Guests. There
1: we go. That's perfect. So what what really hit you with Pauline?
0: Well, I think her confidence, her vulnerability, uh, the fact that she said my life is a search for belonging and I related to that so much as a daughter of immigrants myself, you know, navigating culture switching all the time I had three cultures to switch between, and I had to very quickly figure out who I was dealing with, and what their cultural priorities were, uh, and what my role would be in those so I wouldn't offend And so it's a lot of work but then on strength finders, uh, I score all, all of us, I guess, score really high on context, which would be one reason why I love history so much because history is just this collage of cultures moving through time. And so I love that about her. I could just, I thought, I kept thinking, I bet I know what she's cooking for dinner as she goes to her Sudanese family home.
1: <laughs> oh, now you just made me hungry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. What about you? Yeah,
1: I love, I just loved getting to interview her. Um, I've known her since she was a student at Azusa Pacific University. And so it's been really um, fun to watch her in a sense, grow up through her 20s and all of these experiences she talked about to watch from a distance. And a lot of those I hadn't heard her full story. It wasn't until her late 20s that I heard the first version of her story story, and I was just blown away. Mm-hmm. And so now listening to her again, you know, she is a, she just really reflects on her life. Her she always honors her mom. Her mom has just been so amazing in her life as this. Powerful woman who defends, stands up for, takes care of the South Sudanese population in San Diego, and that's really been a huge example for Pauline. And I think, mm-hmm. as she talked about being a mother now and as a mother, you go, "Wow."
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I hate this. Yeah, exactly. And her description of her mother as a caseworker, but really also community organizer. And her own work in community organizing. I thought, all oh, the women in the Bible who did exactly that. And she said, yeah, and there's just really no one way to be a community organizer or a woman at that. <laughs> what That's is? right.
1: I know. And she said that I was like, I've been writing about all these women and you're right. They're all different. All of
0: them. <laughs> Ima- imagine women are actually human.
1: <laughs> what? You mean Tabitha, they didn't even say that she, whose daughter she was or whose mother or whose wife? She was just a disciple?
0: <laughs> oh, no, no. After, after a woman, a child is born female, there's just really no code. It's just you're human, created in the image of God and gifted in unique ways. Go for it.
1: Right, yeah. And Pauline really has. I've just watched her scout out how to do that and go for it.
0: I I feel so thankful to have met her and I'm going to be praying for her and her organization. And I'm really grateful, Kim, that you introduced us to both. Yeah,
1: you're welcome. I'm excited to hear what people think after they listen to her.
0: (laughs) So let us know. And this is Kim and Mimi thanking you for being a part of this great journey and adventure. And we'll talk to you next month. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.